welcome to yet another episode of the new space india podcast during 1934 and 1944 in calcutta stephen smith worked alone and unsupported on developing rocket transport in 1935 he was the first to demonstrate the successful transport by rocket of livestock food and medicine my guest today is kurbir singh whose book charts the story of stephen smith described by a contemporary as the greatest one man campaign for rocketry he dedicated his life alone in northern india to develop a new revolutionary means of transport using only rocket power the development of rockets in india is commonly understood to have ended with tipu sultan in 1799 and started again in 1963 when what is now called the indian space research organization however in the intervening period rockets were built and championed by one man working alone in calcutta on 14th february 1891 stephen h smith the only son of a tea plantation manager was born in strawberry hill region of shillong between 1934 and 1944 he conducted over 200 rocket experiments to demonstrate the utility of rocket as a means of transport Stephen Smith worked alone and unsupported in India. Today his work is found in the official NASA publications, the Journal of British Interplanetary Society and the National Air and Space Museum. Gurbir's book charts his struggles as well as his contacts with people like the King of Sikkim, with King George V, with a member of parliament in London and a 25 year long correspondence with a swiss philatelist reveals in his own words his struggle to attain recognition and support for his work he also had a reluctant attempt to work with the military authorities in india during the world war 2 to gain support to his work post the indian independence he tried to contact the governor of bengal and the prime minister then nehru however with the many challenges of independent india he failed to get any response from any of them gurbir the author of this book is based in the uk in 2017 he published a book the indian space program which is one of the very detailed accounts of the indian space capabilities and achievements that stands today gurbir uh, welcome to the new space india podcast uh, yet again i'm very glad to have you as a guest uh, to talk about uh, your new book india's forgotten rocket pioneer stephen smith from pigeon mail to rocket mail Thank you. It's great to be here. So I just finished uh, reading the copy of your book, uh, you know, a couple of days ago, and uh, the the book is very fresh in my mind, uh, and it's a fascinating book. And uh, you know, thank you very much for researching on this topic for because this is something that uh, I think hardly anybody knows that India had somebody experimenting on rockets in the nineteen thirties, and uh, so I just wanted to begin the the podcast by asking you. what is the new information that your book provides in the story of stephen smith well i came across the work uh, of stephen smith whilst researching my earlier book the indian space program and i noticed this huge gap uh, in the story of rockets in india uh, between the end of uh, what tipu sultan did in 1799 and the launch of the nike apache rocket in uh, by india in kosbar or israel as it later came to know in thumba in 1963 nobody was doing uh, work with uh, rockets as far as i could tell 
But then um, during that uh, research for the Indian Space Program, I came across Stephen Smith, who was conducting um, fairly uh, simple rocket experiments uh, in India, in, in and around Calcutta. Uh, between 1934 and 1944, he conducted over 200 rocket mail experiments. Um, and it wasn't just rocket mail. He used rockets to transport medicines and even living, living creatures. Um, he was doing something that many other countries were doing, and, but he did it for the longest period, for about 10 years, uh, where, whilst uh, similar uh, experimenters in Europe and America did it for a much shorter period. And his first rocket was launched in 1934. And that's the time when a lot of rocketry uh, societies were forming around Europe and the US, um, Belgium, Netherlands and Britain, and uh, uh, of course Germany. So he was, uh, Smith was a contemporary of uh, Werner von Braun, Hermann Orberth, Robert Goddard, now, Smith's contribution in rocketry was nowhere com comparable with theirs, but uh, I discovered a letter in the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C., where Phil Cleeter, who was the founder of the British Interplanetary Society in 1933 here in Liverpool, exchanging letters with um, Edward Pendray, who was uh, the founder of the American Interplanetary Society. And the letters from 1936 where they're both exchanging details. Cleto is talking about Smith's work and um, Pendray is talking about Robert Goddard's work. So Smith's work is uh, right up there, taking place in midst the time when rockets were first being um, experimented with. Also, in uh, 1934, late 1934, just after he, Smith conducted his very first rocket mail experiment, he joined the British Interplanetary Society and sent reports of his rocket mail experiments to the BIS. They were published in the uh, Bulletin of the BIS in 1935. And the, author, the editor of the BIS Bulletin at the time was a teenager, Arthur C. Clarke. So um, what I discovered that uh, he, through the letters and papers, that he actually did have a presence at a time when um, a lot of the um, pioneering work was being done in, in India. And of course, um, um, in the period he was doing, there was World War II, Indian independence, huge upheaval at that time. And the coincidence of timing meant that a lot of the work he did really fell in the shadows of other much greater world events, and even in his letters. Um, Stephen Smith wrote to uh, many people, including P Prime Minister Nehru, but he didn't get the recognition. So I wanted, through this book, to bring him and his work out of the shadow, and I considered that Israel is a place where his work should be recognised. And I was so delighted that the former Israel chairman, Kiran Kumar, agreed to write a foreword for this book. Excellent. And uh, you mentioned that uh, this was a link that you established, uh, you know, from the days of your research of your uh, first book, which is the Indian Space Program. Uh, how did you come across uh, Stephen Smith during this research? Was it somebody who was passing who mentioned it to you or 
what was the link uh, you know in the research you know i wish i could remember precisely how that happened but um you know i um wanted to um do some research online and it was the philatelic community stamp collectors who have uh, written and documented a lot of the work that Stephen Smith did and Stephen Smith wasn't alone there were many other people like um, Germany's Gerhard Zucker and Carol Roberti in the Netherlands and Friedrich Schmiedel in uh, in Austria so a lot of that work was uh, uh, documented online and it's in connection with uh, those works that I so Stephen Smith and although you know Stephen Smith doesn't sound indian but he was indian he was born in assam um but his father was uh, from england he he was a christian he was brown skinned like me but he uh, i'm sure he spoke hindi really well but his english was really excellent um so it's through this philatelic community uh the writings and the catalogs that uh, record a lot of the work that Stephen Smith did and there are organizations um I'm so really surprised and impressed with how rich the activities of the philatelic community in India uh, is right now and also outside uh, India there's the philatelic society uh to as well as the philatelic society of india inside india there are many organizations outside india like the india study circle and there's an equivalent one in germany the isc in, in britain and the uh, or similar organizations in germany who specialize in uh male history of uh, of india and it's in their writings that i found a lot of the documented uh, evidence of the work that uh, he did and you know even today if you can find some rare covers that were flown by Stephen Smith they can cost up to $20,000 and many of the individuals since then I've contacted in India I'll just mention a, a couple of names if I may there's Paish Kaitan and Mark and Dave uh, Ramu Srinivasa and also Pradeep Jain most of these names uh, have no connection with the space world but only in the philatelic world but they recorded in their working in books that uh the work that Stephen Smith did in um uh, in rocketry and since then I also found work in NASA documents that con- that mentioned his work um doc- museums like uh, the National Air and Space Museum in Washington DC um the Postal uh, Museum in London and many private collections in Liverpool and Bern in Switzerland have records not only of his work but letters that he wrote um one individual that he established a, a very long relationship with was a Dr Robert Paganini and it's really the um uh, records that uh, he Robert Paganini kept um for 25 year long correspondence with with uh, Smith uh, although they never met Paganini was in Switzerland and Smith was in in mostly in Calcutta in India they communicated for 25 years and those letters directly from Smith uh which I saw in the communication museum in Bern were really the foundations for this this book Paganini died in November in December 1950 and one of the thing items I found in that uh, archive was a will and in that will um 
Paganini left Smith a quarter of everything he had. And this was something, somebody he never spoken to or met, and they were thousands of miles away. But sadly, Smith himself died just two months later. So he himself uh, did not benefit. But it just goes to show the deep and sincere relationship these two men had over that very long period. Yeah, that's uh, really a fascinating uh, introduction. Uh, so just to get down to the process itself, uh, I would love to know, you know, what was the process of your research in coming up with the book itself? I'd, I'd done a little bit of research whilst uh, uh, writing for the Indian Space Programme. And um, one of the, the only time that Smith ever went out of India was to Sikkim. Now, at that time, Sikkim was a separate entity. It's in 1935. Uh, today, it's part of India, or became part of India in 1975. Um, and, um, you know, I'd seen all these items on uh, online and books and papers, but I really didn't have any um, tangible evidence that Smith ever existed. Um, I'd never been able to speak or communicate with anyone who'd met him. So in one of my research trips to, to India for the Indian Space Programme, I went to Calcutta and I went to Elliot Road, where Smith uh, had lived. I visited his house, but of course it had been handed over and, uh, uh, but many times since then. But I did meet uh, Melvin Brown, who was a writer uh, on Anglo-Indian subjects, and he told me that he had met Smith's son Hector, and that was my first connection. And the uh, other connection was um, I went to the cemetery in Circular Road, uh, Circular Road Cemetery in Calcutta. And although I didn't see his gravestones, I saw his grave, but it was the entry in the records of the cemetery where I saw his full name, the year of his birth and the year he died, that I actually had very, for the very first time uh, tangible evidence that he existed. So I actually ended up going to a grave gravestone to uh, ensure that my ghosts were realised rather than looking for ghosts in a graveyard. But the other uh, in, uh, trip I made was at that time was a trip to Sikkim. I went to the archives in Gangtok where they had a file still uh, recording from uh, all the most of the correspondent co correspondence from Smith with the King of Sikkim at the time. And uh, Smith made two visits to Sikkim, where he uh, uh, wanted to show that his rockets, in particular areas of the undulating hilly landscape of Sikkim, which is in the foot foothills of the Himalayas, would be particularly useful where traditionally roads are very difficult. So he demonstrated that he could send mail um, from one part of Gangkok to another very quickly, and this is particularly useful at times of uh, emergency like earthquakes or floods. Um, and that, along with other evidence from uh, people that I've since met, uh, particularly the Paganini archive, served as the foundation for the material I used in the book. One of the you know links that I thought here that we could discuss about is uh, everybody or most people who I know in the space community know a little bit about Tipu Sultan and you know, the bamboo rockets that Tipu Sultan's uh, you know, regime had. 
uh, and then you know congreve uh, confiscating a lot of them and taking it back to england and that's a very well known or relatively well known uh, part of history than than smith so you know what led to smith or smith's story being almost forgotten in the context of uh, you know indian history in that sense uh, because as you said smith is a part of the philatelic community and uh, his story was captured by them but i think the whole rocketry part of it is completely ignored uh, by any of the historians i would say to a large extent uh, capturing indian history i mean uh, do you think there was a, a generational gap and also because you know tipu sultan was uh, you know a king and then uh, a kingdom attached to it so maybe that was very well recorded by historians rather than smith who was just a, a normal person well i think the um, main um, reason why there isn't a great deal of record of uh, smith's work in india is because he was not there's two two parts to that answer really one was that um, uh, at the time that smith was doing this he was surrounded by really quite dramatic world events uh, you know we had the independence movement in india uh, then the world war 2 there was a famine in calcutta there was the independence itself and post independence rights and in calcutta there's a lot of rioting and, and fighting and a lot of shortage of uh, uh, basic materials so smith uh, surprisingly when you look at uh, uh, him with that background it's amazing that he was able to do this kind of work uh in uh, under those circumstances and the other reason is that a lot of the contacts that he had were international and i think this is the other thing that uh, i discovered through my research that for the first time i realized that most of his work uh was published outside india and valued outside india and mainly this was because of uh, smith's doing he was a member of the british interplanetary society he had a very strong connection with robert paganini and uh, so a lot of the uh, work and recognition he was getting was taking place outside india uh, exactly why he smith didn't get uh, a larger um, support from within india is it's a bit of a mystery i don't know i can't see why with such a huge population he wasn't able to partner up with uh, other people um of uh, like-minded people in in india but um in a way smith did benefit from the work that uh, was done uh, on uh, in developing the congreve rockets so the congreve rockets were the rockets that were developed um using tipu's rockets from uh, 1799 uh, onwards but they were brought over to to london and developed by William Congreve and a lot of the enhancements he made were a lot of them were in the development of the the fuel the powder black powder um and uh, smith um used um saying indirectly those enhanced uh, products because the rocket fuel that um, smith used in in his rockets came from commercial manufacturers there were two companies british but based in calcutta Uh, the orient fireworks company and james payne and sons they produced what uh, in modern rocketry we call grains but in smith's time he called cartridges and they were the um 
basis of uh, his propulsion and he buy these pretty much ready-made and uh, these fuels were the products of the enhancements that Congreve had introduced but um, later although he doesn't share a great deal of information on this this is about 1944 he Smith says that he's using compressed air and gas as propellants in multi-stage rockets. He talks about it very briefly in, in a, one or two letters and he keeps records of the flights, but in terms of the technical details of how he was getting the compressed air, what kind of gas he was using, there's no detail. But there is a direct link, even though Smith might not have known, but he did benefit from the work that Congreve did in developing propellants. Yeah, the interesting question there is, uh, did uh, you know Smith ever read about uh, Tipu Sultan's work or uh, you know later Congreve's work, and uh, or has, was it just coincidence that uh, some of their works or some of their background uh, benefited him? I don't know. Uh, he there's no evidence in what I've seen that he refers to uh, talk, uh, reading about uh, either Tipu's work or Congreve's work. But uh, I do know that he did. He wrote several books. He wrote about five books and, and produced about another uh, seven or eight that he never published. And one of them was about uh, balloons, early days of balloons. And uh, because he was doing this research and he complains how expensive it was, uh, how difficult it was, and again, doing it alone and unfunded, um, I'm pretty sure that he would have come across both the work of Tipu Sultan and Congreve but in, in the documents and letters that I've seen, there's no reference to Tipu Sultan um, or any of the uh, other uh, work specifically. He just talks about the work on balloons that he's, the, he's doing. He wrote books about uh, birds, aerophilatelic birds, uh, birds in the aerophilatelic uh, community. Um, but a lot of the work he did uh, he did a lot of research. He talks about uh, having completed books, but he never published them. So I know because he was a researcher that he would have come across the work of Tipu Sultan and William Congreve, but he never writes about them and never mentions them. So I see no evidence of that. Of course, Smith uh, was uh, inspired uh, by the aerophilatelic community, as you mentioned uh, in the book, and uh, his primary connection you know before rocket mail it was about collecting uh, you know uh, mail and stamps and mint and all of these things around uh, the aerophilatelic community so i was thinking one of the you know questions that i had uh, was that if somebody claimed that i flew this on uh, on an aircraft or an air, air mail you know how would i believe that uh, it has really flown if i would have to buy it uh, so because you know it's Anybody could claim that a particular stamp is uh, was flown from X place to X on an aircraft and it's of value, but how would somebody authenticate it? That's a real issue, and it's, the problem is still around today. You know, uh, you can go and buy an autographed photograph of, uh, say, Buzz Aldrin today, and it's quite expensive on, on eBay, and they have a, a similar issue. So they're very frequently accompanied by a signed and dated certification or certificate of authentication now you could say that they could perhaps you know uh, forge that too but um, uh, yeah 
the uh, there's one incident actually in a letter that uh, Smith wrote to um, Leslie Johnson, who was uh, the vice president of the BIS. And uh, in addition to letters, Smith uh, would fly uh, other things like medicines and foods as well as living creatures. And one of the things he flew uh, in one of his rockets was a miniature bottle of Long John whiskey. And in his letter in 1937 to Leslie Johnson, he says, uh, look, if you could put me in touch with the company, Long John Whiskey Company, then I can sell them this miniature bottle with a letter to authenticate that this has been flown on a rocket. So this concept of uh, certification of authentication um, was around then and is still around today. And ultimately, you have to do, do some due diligence, especially when the prices of what you're buying is quite expensive and be satisfied that uh, uh, what you are buying is uh, real and uh, has the kind of providence uh, to, to show that it's the case. Because as I was saying earlier, some of these phone items can be thousands of dollars. And um, the, since then, um, th there's been sp much more, uh, many more uh, space-flown um, items, which uh, is a vibrant market uh, these days. I was really one of the things I realized. But yes, the answer is, as far as it goes, is a certificate of authentication that's supplied by the seller. You mentioned that, you know, Stephen Smith uh, starts experimenting with uh, rockets and, uh, you know, I've uh, done some experiments by myself on uh, not rockets, but uh, using high altitude uh, stratospheric balloons uh, for quite some time. And one of the challenges that you see with uh, such uh, objects is that you, it's very hard to predict where they go and uh, because they hardly have any systems where you can very accurately fire them and uh, so one of the things that i it, uh, you know came up in my mind while reading was the how accurate were these rockets and the other question here is uh, it's very difficult to retrieve anything that has flown especially if it's uh, traveling quite some distance because with our balloon experiments for example it used to fly you know 10 15 20 kilometers away and uh, if you didn't have very good gps's on on them it would be very difficult to retrieve them and during smith's time of course there was no gps to retrieve uh, to know where exactly it fell uh, so in even even in our case right where we had uh, some of these balloons actually the payloads uh, being taken away by villagers who found them just before we even arrived at the scene and they would take them and then uh, you know keep them at their houses and we to we would go and hunt them down so uh, I was thinking, you know, how come that uh, some of this stuff didn't happen during Stephen Smith's time or did it happen? Uh, this was an interesting thought that came up in my mind. And, and a very valid one. Um, there's two aspects to this. One is um, that, uh, you know, I, I saw an announcement recently, just a few days ago, that uh, SpaceX um, stopped uh, sharing details of their manifest of their launches, whereas in the past they always put stuff on their websites. So there's this idea that um, uh, people who are at the forefront of this te technology want to keep it private. There's that aspect to it. So uh, there's a letter that I saw uh, in the National Air and Space Museum from Friedrich Schmiedel to a guy called Francis 
uh, in, in the UK. And in that letter, Schmiedel complains that uh, people are claiming very long distances their rockets cover, and particularly he singles out uh, Gerhard Zucker, who claiming that uh, his rockets were reaching a distance of between four and nine kilometers. And Schmiedel's, uh, the longest distance he claimed was about 2,400 meters, about two kilometers, two and a half kilometers. So he was, Schmiedel was concerned that um, a lot of people were just making this up. And uh, I think that's, pre 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 uh, that's pretty accurate. In, uh, of all the people around, Schmiedel, who was technically the most competent of the rocket mill experimenters, who'd been very, um, was very technical, he's an engineer, he'd been taught by two Nobel laureates in the, uh, in the Vienna Technical Hochschule. He had a lot of the skills, but certainly Smith and Gerhard Zucker didn't. So they were just estimating. They just looked and figured out how far their rockets were taking, uh, what kind of range they had, and the altitudes they were reaching. They didn't have the instruments to measure precisely how high these, uh, or how far they traveled. And they probably didn't have uh, the technical capability to use the engineering instruments that would have allowed them to get some precise measurements. So um, I think, um, the, the, uh, so as a result of that, Schmiedel says, I'm not going to share any more of my details. And in fact, in that letter, he also talks about writing to Smith, uh, uh, asking him how far his uh, rockets are going, but uh, Schmiedel complains that he didn't get a response. So there's a lot of um, information that uh, people feel they want to keep secret. There's a lot of exaggeration, a bit like we have in modern times, you know. Um, some companies in startups can um, exaggerate their worth or their claims or what they've achieved. And that was, it was like that uh, uh, in those days. Schmiedel's, he also experimented with uh, um, stratospheric rockets. He launched uh, rockets from balloons. So he'd launch, he was quite high up in the Swiss, uh, in the Austrian Alps. And then he would launch a, a balloon, which when it reached a particular altitude, would launch a rocket. And he made, uh, achieved some incredibly high altitudes. But one of his uh, rockets landed in Hungary. And uh, this is the other technique that uh, they used to make sure that A, they got their rockets back and they knew exactly where they got by putting in a little message in the rocket when it landed that whoever found it would should return it to this location, to this address, and they would get a reward for it. And it's that payback that made a lot of the people return items that they were found. Uh, but it was uh, uh, very competitive in those days as it is these days. That's uh, pretty, pretty kind of interesting to know the mechanics of all of it and how, you know, history kind of repeats uh, despite technology changes all the time. So uh, one of the interesting, uh, you know, happenings with Smith is that Smith is based in Calcutta, which is uh, or which was the capital of then uh, British India. And uh, to a certain extent, maybe benefited because Calcutta is also the port where a lot of activity happens and and also was the uh, political capital. Uh, but I think during the 1930s is when uh, Delhi took off and Stephen Smith was just, uh, you know, beginning to experiment with his rockets then. Uh, 
so do you think that uh, because calcutta was not you know the political center anymore the access that smith would have gotten reduced quite a lot and if calcutta remained the political capital and a lot of the political access of people were available to smith then he would have benefited a lot more um this is interesting yes um it was in 1931 that uh, new delhi became the official capital but because calcutta had this very rich history was where all the initial where the uh, big players were where the uh, sort of center of british trade and many of the other western uh, powers were based it was a very cosmopolitan city um and so smith continued to benefit from those connections but also because despite his efforts smith really wasn't able to make any high level political contacts so the fact that the politi- political center moved to delhi didn't really affect him very much but he still continued to make use of the um powerful and rich and well connected uh, elite in calcutta Uh, he in fact made uh, uh, contact with uh, one Jewish family, uh, David Ezra, and his wife Rachel Sassoon. Uh, both were very influential in Calcutta society, and they made their home available to Smith for his Indian Airmail Society meetings and get-togethers. Um, and also through them, he was able to um, communicate his. Uh, his work and um and get a larger india wide but also international visibility that his work would not otherwise have gained um he also benefited from uh rachel sassoon she became much more uh, involved in the philatelic uh, activities that smith was involved in but specifically rachel sassoon had a, a cousin Philip Sassoon who was an MP in London and uh, I'm sure through that connection Smith wrote a letter in 1936 seeking support for his work on with rockets but by 1936 so this is a year after uh, Gerhard Sucker had uh, uh, been testing rockets in in England and Scotland and largely they had gone spectacularly unsuccessful and the reports in newspapers in 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 England were showing that uh, really um he was he was very uh, much a showman but he was, was very unsuccessful in uh, in his rocket so the request that uh, sir philip sassoon got from smith was turned down for support mainly on the back of um the failures of gerhard sucker and they concluded that the rockets were going everywhere except where they were intended to go because there's just no ability to control them and that was sad because um, it was sucker's work in 1934 that um, initially got um smith to get going with his rocket mills in india and it's because of sucker and the largely international uh, coverage of his failures that brought the whole of rocket mail into a bit of disrepute and certainly as far as the british government was concerned it was a non-starter smith didn't get any support for his work and uh, a lot of the people in the philatelic community 
were disheartened because of the uh, uh, reputation loss that Zucker brought to the whole of the uh, philatelic and rocket mail community itself. So sad, but um, being in, Cal in Calcutta was no major difficulty for Smith um, at the time. Yeah, I mean, uh, it's also interesting that uh, Stephen Smith thought about rocketry as uh, very civilian approaches to use of rocketry because he thinks about rocketry in terms of uh, mail initially, and then he thinks about uh, rocketry as a part of uh, you know, transporting items of use in disasters or, or transporting uh, items more quickly from either some, uh, from ship to shore or in challenging geographies. But uh, only uh, during the war does he think about rocketry in terms of uh, military means or more focused in terms of military efforts. But I always wonder, uh, you know, in Smith's story, is there any time that he thought, uh, you know, the Indian right-wing uh, movement for independence would have been an avenue for him to get more support in terms of monetary means? Because, of course, there was uh, a lot of, uh, you know, like peaceful protest against British occupation in India and, you know, the Gandhian way of doing things, but also... Uh, uh, I mean, I imagine there was, of course, a very um, also a right-wing approach uh, to to maybe taking up uh, arms against uh, British in India to you know kick them out of India uh, for Indian independence. So, do you think uh, because Stephen Smith was uh, a Christian and then had Christian values, uh, it kept him you know not to connect with this kind of uh, community, uh, or you know was it something else? That's it's a really interesting um, uh, perspective. Now, I've not seen anything documented, uh, so this is just uh, my take on on, uh, on on this issue. But if you look at what um, uh, how others fared, uh, you know, Sergei Korolev was imprisoned by the Soviet authorities in Russia, and later he worked for the state. And likewise, uh, Werner von Braun, he... Um, worked uh, under very difficult circumstances in the uh, Nazi party under Hitler. Uh, but uh, he, like Korolev, was working on what he loved doing. So he put up with, with a great deal of um, the environment that he perhaps otherwise would not have. So I, the, as far as Smith is concerned, I think he also... Um, challenged his own views and decided that um, he was wanted to continue with his rocket testing so he supported if you like the approach of the then british indian government and I'll also remember his father was british he came from uh, eastern england and uh, from a, a town called brig about uh, 100 kilometers from where i am right now and he was very much um, uh, a British citizen. He saw himself as a British citizen and he had all the contacts with the mostly Western communities in Calcutta. Uh, he was a member of the... He considered himself, although he doesn't say this, as a, an Anglo-Indian by virtue of his, uh, his father, certainly. Uh, but also, I think um, he... Um, if you look at his writing, he writes really good English. Um, he later he can 
asserted his Indianness, but in the early days he knew that he was going to get the most support from the British government, and therefore uh, it was in his his interest, I think, and I'm speculating that uh, he should uh, uh, be on the side of the British, so to speak, and that's why he wrote to the British MP seeking support. Later, in after independence, or certainly after the war, when it was pretty obvious that the British were going to leave, he then asserted his Indian Indianness. He says in a letter that he is an Indian, and he wrote to the governor of uh, uh, West Bengal, uh, seeking support and in recognition of his work. He even wrote to Prime Minister Nehru. Uh, but, you know, these were challenging times, and uh, there's no record of him ever getting an answer from uh, Nehru or any of the others. But no, he um, always uh, remained uh, apolitical, but he did turn to uh, the military, uh, the first the British authorities who were running India, and then the independent Indian Prime Minister to seek support. Um, and he was doing what Koreliev and von Braun were doing. He just wanted to ensure that he could develop his rockets and he would take the support from wherever it came. Yes, you did mention that, you know, he, his father was uh, British. So I was wondering, you know, why did he not try, you know, like immigrating back to England where he could have carried on doing his work, maybe with much more better access and funding? So in um, the days of British India, he was trying to secure funds from the British government. And after independence, he <clears throat> tried likewise with the Nehru government. But why he didn't go himself to, to Britain, I don't know. Um, so I know that uh, from about 1944 onwards, he had several spells when he was uh, severely ill. And I'm sure that had uh, an impact on his decision. Some of the letters that I found in, in, in the Communication Museum in Bern, uh, he writes poignantly about the profound shifts in population. Uh, this is the end of the Second World War, towards independence and everything that's happening there. And in March 1944, he writes to uh, Robert Paganini saying, I should have died by the 13th of March. I was very bad. Nobody expected me to live. So he was probably too ill to travel and the tumultuous events taking around him um, meant that he himself could not uh, practically travel. And by the time things did settle down um, in the early 1950s. Uh, well, Paganini had died in December 1950 and Smith himself died in February 1951. I think if he'd lived a little longer, he perhaps would have travelled to, to England. Indeed, his son Hector and his wife did go to, uh, to England and they are settled. Uh, they were settled here. Hector died early on. Uh, soon after he arrived, but uh, his wife, up until um, about three years ago, I know, was still alive and living in London. So this was uh, Stephen Smith's uh, daughter-in-law, and uh, his granddaughter and great-granddaughter are still around in London today. One of the great insights that you put out in the book is uh, the friendship between uh, Stephen Smith and uh, Robert Paganini two people who never met 
but had a letter-based relationship for 25 years, and at the end of which uh, Paganini writes one-fourth of his uh, estate in the name of Stephen Smith, which is fascinating that you know two people separated by a continent who never met uh, can develop such uh, deep friendships just by uh, males between each other during the time. So I was, uh, you know, wondering how did Stephen Smith connect with Paganini in the first instance? Because I know that both of them are a part of the philatelic community. Was there uh, yellow pages for the philatelic community that uh, was passing around where people could then, uh, you know, get in touch with each other or how did it work? Yeah, you're right. There's no yellow pages and of course there's no internet. Um, in uh, 1924, uh, Smith decided to, he'd been interested in phil, uh, collecting stamps and being a philatelist, but in 1924 he set up what later came to be known as the Indian Airmail Society. And by that time, Robert Pagnini had uh, been, uh, had set up his um, uh, society, similar society in, uh, in Switzerland for about a dozen years. Uh, he was one of the, Robert Pagnini in, in Switzerland was one of the first to produce a catalogue of airmails uh, because the very first airmail in, uh, in Switzerland uh, took place in uh, about 1912 and he, Pagnini, recognised the importance and decided to document and record that. He was the founder of uh, Philately in Switzerland. So by the time it was 1924 and Smith was trying to um, uh, set up a similar organization in India, he communicated with uh, Paganini. He must have known about this because he would have read uh, similar books and, and uh, journals. Um, and he invited Paganini to be an honorary member of the Indian Airmail Society. And uh, in uh, 1925, he... Paganini accepts and he writes to him, says, I'm very honoured. And that's the start of that 25 year long correspondence relationship. And the, um, in those days, the way to communicate with the outside world was through written journals or bulletins or reports or books and catalogues. Um, they, especially in very largely uh, continental, divided people, they never really met. Phone calls were even more rarer. So um, journals from these societies uh, and newspaper articles um, and letters were the means of communication. But the first contact was between uh, when Smith wrote to Paganini, inviting him to join as an honorary member of his Indian Airmail Society that he'd just founded. Your book is uh, having a lot of characters and the way you talk about them is very interesting because uh, there's Gerhard Zucker, there is uh, Friedrich Miedl, there is uh, Lay, there is uh, Stephen Smith, of course, and you know, all these characters who have a touch between philatelic societies and, uh, and rocketry. And uh, two of them I find very interesting uh, are both, as you said, Gerhard Zucker, who was a German who was experimenting on rockets and mostly, you know, being a doing theatrics rather than more rocketry in England. And uh, Friedrich Schmidl, of course, an Austrian who's had this engineering background had, and had the rigor to do research. But, you know, Stephen Smith interestingly chooses uh, Gerhard Zucker's theatrics as an inspiration rather than the rigor of, uh, you know, Friedrich uh, Schmidl. 
Uh, was this because Zucker uh, was more popular in England and his theatrics were more popular in England? England? You know, um, I'm guessing, I'm speculating that, uh, and, and Smith does say very clearly that it was the work of uh, Zucker that motivated him uh, in his uh, rocket mills. Um, I think it was because it happened in England. Smith's um, looking at um, Schmiedel's work in Austria, and which is far superior in terms of uh, the um, engineering quality of the work that uh, Schmiedel is doing in Austria. But Zucker does it in England, and I think Schmiedel sees himself, sorry, Smith sees himself as a British subject, and uh, he recognises the king uh, um, as uh, a loyal subject, and he takes his lead because this is happening in England. That was the motivation, I think, for uh, Smith to choose uh, Zucker's work as a trigger. But just a word about um, why this concept of rocket mail uh, came into being. So, the um, in the early days, remember all these societies and organizations, and in Smith's case, he's just a lone individual in India, they have to fund themselves. And one of the ways they can fund themselves is by making use of these rockets and getting some sort of return. And there were three key ways. One of them was, this is very unusual, and it was tried in, uh, in, in, uh, in Germany. You might recall the um, uh, Fritz Lang film from 1929, Frau im Mond, The Woman in the Moon. And this film was a sci-fi film, and it needed a, a, a scene of a rocket launch. And uh, Hermann Orberth was... Um, uh, played a part in developing uh, a rocket that would launch and that launch sequence would form part of the um, uh, of the film. So you could get uh, income by getting involving yourself with the film industry or, as in um, Schmiedel's case, he was interested in using rockets to do research. Uh, and Willy Ley, also a German... Um, but later went to America, uh, considered that scientific research for these rockets is where the uh, benefits lay. And the third option was using um, rockets to transport something from one place to another. Initially, as uh, souvenirs, they, these items could be sold. So a lot of, just about every rocket that Smith launched carried some form of com commemorative covers, they would be called, there were like pretty much postcards with various stamps on them and caches indicating what event that was being commemorated. So this was a way for um, grassroots organisations which had little or no income to generate income for uh, them to allow them to continue. And and, and Willie Lay, for example, he uh, was part of the Verein für Raumschifffahrt, the VFR, the German society, which was the earliest one that's founded in Berlin in 1926, uh, or thereabouts. Um, but as the um, uh, Hitler came to power, Willy Ley left um, and uh, went to America. But he did come to the UK first. He was invited by the 
by Phil Cleeter, the founder of the British Interplanetary Society, and he gave a few presentations in Liverpool. Um, and, and later, the, um, uh, all of these people were members of, uh, of each other's organisations. So Willie Lay and later uh, Von Braun were honorary members of the British Interplanetary Society. And indeed, in uh, 1961, Von Braun was given a gold medal by the British Interplanetary Society. Uh, and remember, he was a German who bombed, or whose bombs uh, caused some damage in London. And there was a lot of um, uh, disagreement within the society in Britain on the sensible sense, uh, on the sense of uh, him getting this award from a British organisation. But a lot of these individuals were members of each other's organisations and they needed support. And the best way for Smith uh, of all the three options was to go with the um, rocket mail option. And that's how he funded himself for most of the time he was testing rockets. Smith, uh, of course, has a very interesting uh, background uh, in terms of his knowledge and his career. Uh, you mentioned in your book that uh, you know Smith uh, started off as a, a police officer and then become a, became a customs agent and then eventually was a dentist. Uh, and then, uh, of course, he had an interest in neuroplatelet and then got into rockets and rocket development. That's uh, really very different jobs from one to the other. So I would imagine that Smith had very little knowledge on uh, designing rockets themselves and, uh, you know, technical expertise of going into what goes into rocket development might not have been with Smith uh, because his lack of knowledge in any kind of engineering. So, you know, with that uh, taken into account, he is uh, working with local vendors to get, uh, you know, gunpowder or whatever, the powder to, to fuel his rockets and he is trying to build these rockets. So there are, and of course, you know, he's also trying to experiment in new ideas like trying to get uh, mail from uh, ship into shore and uh, trying to save time by ships not docking into the shore, but essentially trying to save some hours of uh, getting the mail from the ship uh, flown on a rocket. So I had two questions there. One is, you know, uh, what was... Uh, you know, his link to designing these kinds of rockets and uh, did he pick up any technical expertise on the way? And the other is, uh, how safe are these rockets if somebody had to fly them from a ship to the shore and how accurate were they? Well, um, you're quite right. Smith had no technical or engineering skills. He, I'm sure over time he, uh, he did develop some gradually. Uh, but he did have some... Um, uh, artistic skills in um, addition to designing uh, many stamps and indeed he designed the very first airmail stamp for India um, he did if you look at some of the rockets and I've got some pictures in the book um, he's got um, uh, very aerodynamic and um, symmetric drawings of the aerofoils on some of his rockets he used the uh, fins and um, veins and rudders to um, make sure, or he thought he would like to control where the rockets landed when they were returning to Earth. Although he tried parachutes, he recognised that uh, parachutes were at the mercy of the, the atmosphere 
and he could not control where they landed. So if you look at some of the models uh, of the uh, rockets in the, that he drew, I think he had some uh, practical skills in terms of drawing and making, he physically made all his rockets, um, but in terms of uh, engineering skills, he had not. Uh, in fact, he contacted uh, a guy called um, Victor Pont in the early 30s. And Victor Pont had been a member, had been a, a, was a British railway engineer. He'd been based in, in Calcutta in the late 1920s when he was a member of uh, the Indian Airmail Society. So he knew him personally. But um, he tried to um, invite him uh, to work together. He said that he would love to have an engineer that he could work, uh, work with. I'm just puzzled as to why... Um, Smith, uh, nobody else approached Smith and offered their skills because that's one thing that he lacked. Smith lacked, uh, he did pretty much everything himself because he had no one else to work with. Why that was the case, given that uh, he was in such a, a place like Calcutta, I'm sure there were people with appropriate skills who could help him, but he never hooked up with anybody who could, uh, who could do that for him. Uh, so he was just pretty much struggling all the way through. When it comes to um, ship-to-shore rockets, uh, so one of the, the, in fact, the very first rocket that Smith launched in September 1934 was from a ship on the Hooghly River to uh, an island, Soga Island, uh, which was pretty much in, uninhabited but um, had a lighthouse. But he wanted to demonstrate that, particularly in bad weather, when ships uh, can't, uh, going to harbour, or indeed if there's, there are places in the world where there is no safe harbour, you can just, from a passing ship, just launch the mail from a ship to the shore. And, um, you know, for uh, his early attempts, he had a lot of failures, but in terms of accuracy, um, he didn't need a great deal. Uh, as long as people could see the ship, they could uh, monitor the rocket launch and pick up the, uh, uh, the, the mail when it landed. It just solved a real-world pr uh, problem. So ship-to-shore and less uh, successful shore-to-ship were techniques were tried, although Smith himself didn't really um, continue to have a great deal of success in those areas, but the technology for that, or the technique, had been around for a long time, uh, not just in India, but elsewhere. Uh, so it was a way of uh, showing that uh, there was some value in rockets, um, but it was not particularly accurate, but didn't need to be that accurate. And that's why he used this pretty much uninhabited island as his first experiment. Your uh, book also taught me some very interesting uh, facts, like uh, the first airmail in the world, uh, you know, being carried uh, in India. That was really uh, interesting to read uh, the history of airmail and how India is in the middle of it. Uh, but of course, uh, one of the things that you mentioned in your book is uh, how apathetic uh, Smith's own family was, uh, you know, in his interest of airmail and rocket mail. And uh, you talk about how difficult uh, it was to get, for example, his family to comment or to participate in your research. Uh, do you get a sense of why is that case? Was it because, uh, you know, Smith's family had to, you know, live through 
the Bengal famine and the Indian independence struggle and, you know, the post-independence problems and uh, they just wanted to get over with all of it and that's why they didn't want to have any of it? I don't know. Um, So uh, I I had hoped uh, initially after uh, the... uh, writing the Indian Space Programme book, that if I found his family, I would write about Smith. Uh, I did find his family, but they were not interested. And um, now, by the time um, his kids were grown up and old enough, um, they pretty much left um, India, started a new life in England, and a lot of the work that he'd done um, uh, had been... Uh, they were very detached from it physically as well as, I think, psychologically. Um, but I didn't, they, they expressed, you know, they were quite proud of the work. Uh, his granddaughter in an email said to me that uh, uh, had he been uh, doing his work today, he would have far better recognition than he did get in his time. So they're quite proud of him. They recognise the, the work, but they just don't want to come forward and um, talk about it or uh, be uh, in the media in, in any sense. So I respected uh, their decision. And uh, uh, if you look at the family tree that I've drawn about uh, Smith's origins, I just use first names. Um, I, I really don't have a, an answer, but um, it's, it's a personal matter and it's their choice. And had I not found the huge collection of uh, Smith's letters in the uh, Museum for Communication in Bern um, that uh, Robert Pagnini had uh, archived, um, I would not have access to Smith's own words, um, and this book would never have been written. But uh, his family made a choice, and uh, I respect that. One of the you know interesting things that Smith does is writing these letters and he's communicating to the Western audience, especially the British and American newspapers, about his experiments and the developments that he's been doing in India. Um, so, you know, now there is, of course, uh, in journalism, you have to authenticate your source and you have to clarify that, uh, you know, something's really happened. But, you know, a lot of these newspapers are publishing uh, Smith's claims. Uh, was there a way of verifying his work uh, that these newspapers did? Or were they just, you know, writing it as uh, articles that uh, claim that uh, has been taken by somebody? Well, well uh, you know, one of the uh, uh, impressive things about Smith was that he was uh, not quite in the way that Zucker was, but he really did... Um, have good connections with the journalists. Uh, the Star of India was one of the um, newspapers that uh, pretty much followed him everywhere. And indeed, in one instance, they requested a demonstration, uh, which <laughs> really didn't go very well. But they re- at his the request of newspapers, he did some launches. So just about every launch he did, he would try to get the newspaper journalists from the Star of India and, and others, if you could could get them to join him. So in India, um, the work was being published by journalists who were um, witnessing his experiments. Um, And these reports were produced, were syndicated, as happens these days, in uh, newspapers around the world. And it's surprising how much interest there was, um, because even um, 
uh, one on, following his first trip to Sikkim, um, some uh, guy in uh, New Jersey wanted to get some of the flown covers uh, from his Sikkim trip, and uh, the all he'd seen was the newspaper report. So he wrote to the king of Sikkim, and then that letter was passed on to, to Smith. Um, so he got a surprisingly um, global coverage at the time, but there's no specific uh, international uh, journalist from other countries in India who did that. It's just through normal syndication. But one of the things that um, uh, Smith's letters reveal is that um, through his connection of global contacts, he would ask people like Leslie Johnson and Robert Paganini. Um, he would send them reports of his experiments and say, oh, can you put these in your journals, in your newspapers? And uh, very often they did. And they did that, uh, uh, it's because of that, that uh, Smith achieved this uh, recognition outside India, um, which was very important to uh, the work he was doing for his own uh, success. Because in addition to getting the reports of his work out, it allowed him to sell his covers to international uh, collectors. And when he was selling outside India, he could uh, usually attract higher prices than he could inside India. So people like Johnson and Paganini were instrumental in, uh, in many ways in helping to get his word out and also helping him generate income. You describe, uh, you know, some of the very interesting experiments that uh, Smith was uh, doing. And in one instance, uh, he, you know, he's experimenting, uh, you know, trying to put uh, live animals. And in one instance, he's uh, put a snake inside a, a rocket and he's flown it. And I thought that was a very unusual, uh, you know, choice because if it's uh, some other livestock that people can use, it's interesting. But I don't know how people would use a snake if it came out of a rocket. <laughs> But uh, uh, the other bit is, of course, you know, he's claiming that uh, these rockets are, are flown so to such a height. And I wonder if you had a sense as to why, you know, he made, the, he made this unusual choice of a snake in, in, in some instances and uh, uh, in others, uh, you know, how he would have measured the height of the rocket. Was it just by, you know, what he would imagine uh, seeing them fly or because I don't imagine any of these you know, rockets having any kind of measurement instruments on them. You're dead right. There's no altimeter built into them, uh, certainly. Um, the, the, the answer uh, uh, to the two-part question is both, uh, I don't really know. So on the first part, um, how he measured them, I'm pretty sure that, uh, like uh, Zucker and others, it was more of a qualitative observation rather than a quantitative measurement. So he was just uh, doing, uh, giving the best shot as he guess as he could uh, in terms of range and altitude. As to why he put a snake in there, <laughs> I have no idea, but it is peculiar. Um, the he did uh, about three experiments which carried uh, living creatures, and the first one carried two small chicks, and that he called Adam and Eve. And in the experiment that carried a snake, he also carried an apple. And I thought, you know, I'm just speculating here. He was a Christian. Maybe there's some sort of a biblical connection between Adam and Eve and uh, Adam and Eve and an apple and a snake. I, I don't really know. But one interesting thing that uh, 
I did discover. I thought that um, when I embarked on this, that Stephen Smith was the first one to use rockets to demonstrate that living creatures could be transported using rocket power and rocket power alone. But and this took place in 1935 for Smith, for the first one. But I discovered, uh, I wrote to uh, a contact and uh, she was in her 90s and she sent me a letter that uh, she'd received from Friedrich Schmiedel who had conducted, I think so far, the very first experiment that uh, transported living creatures using rocket power. He had demonstrated in Austria that uh, he could uh, uh, transport butterflies and beetles. And it's just a, a, so far as I can see, a one-off experiment. And in the letter she says that, uh, Schmiedel writes, that the... Um, Beetles, after the flight, uh, scurried away and they were alive and healthy, uh, but uh, he doesn't make any uh, similar claims, or Smeedle doesn't make any similar claims for the butterfly. So I'm wondering if the um, lack of a 100% success of that flight meant that uh, Smeedle didn't pursue it any further, or indeed um, that uh, he didn't think it was uh, uh, something he wanted to pursue. He was also, Schmiedel was also doing some really uh, advanced work in terms of uh, the whole idea of uh, rockets and doing high altitude research. Uh, he, his tutors had done uh, Nobel Prize winning, one of his Nobel Prize winning tutors had done some experiments in high altitude and cosmic rays. And he was trying to see if uh, some seeds that had flown into high altitude might be affected by the radiation and um, exactly how far he got in that experiment, I'm not quite sure. But um, uh, Smeedel didn't publish that or didn't make a big thing out of those experiments as uh, others had done. But also by the late 1930s, as the as Hitler came into power and Austria was pretty much invaded, uh, Smeedel was very concerned that his work might be used for military means and destroyed most of it. So a lot of the work and the records you've kept were destroyed at that time. Of course, you know, uh, as we discussed, uh, Stephen Smith's initial inspiration was uh, airmail. And, um, you know, he, you do mention in your book that uh, after a certain point of time, he almost entirely dependent on his earnings from uh, rocket mail uh, to, to have his, uh, you know, life conducted. So, you know, given that uh, airmail was maturing, you know, he, given that he had also interest in airmail, you know, I was thinking that that would have been also interesting for him to pursue and to keep up while he was, you know, going on with his rocket uh, mail stuff. Was that the case where he was still experimenting or, you know, trading stuff with uh, airmail and uh, trying to use that also for the rocket mail activities? He pretty much never came out of the experimental phase. Uh, you know, he... Uh came around, uh, he was uh, uh, started school in 1903 when the first aeroplanes uh, were successfully tested in, in the US. And when he was leaving school was the time in 1911 when there was the very first airmail in India, in Allahabad, which is not very far from where he was in, in, a, um, in, in India, in Assam. 
So um, I think he was motivated, a bit like maybe you and I are, by whatever the leading technology is of the day, and for us it's space. Um, I think if he had had the, um, the financial support, he perhaps would have liked to have uh, learned to fly and indeed fly himself. But, you know, um, he, although he wasn't, he was privately educated, he wasn't uh, um, particularly well off, but um, uh, Rocket Mail was a compromise. So he wanted to stay in the leading edge of uh, transport technology as he could have seen it at that time. So just practicing uh, developing Rocket was something that he was within his means, so he pursued that. Is there an estimate of any historical record on, uh, you know, how much uh, were his earnings during the time, given the present day, you know, earnings, average earnings uh, then? No, it, it's very, uh, very difficult. Um, and, and I did uh, this messages of both him doing very successfully in terms of uh, he writes that he, there's a great deal of demand for his rocket mails and on one occasion where uh, uh, he Smith went up to um, uh, near the Himalayas because he was aware of his uh, aircraft flight to the summit and the very first planes to fly around the summit of Everest he had some covers he gave to the pilots uh, as souvenirs that he would sell uh, he was charged one guinea, that's just over a pound, uh, for each cover, which is really, really quite expensive. But uh, then he saw prices uh, for purchases afterwards as collectors were willing to pay about £20 per cover. So th there is some evidence that um, he um, he's doing okay financially from these covers. But also he, in one of his letters... Um, he writes uh, uh, to William, um, to Victor Pont, and he says um, one state that he's really stuck for money. And this is in the mid-1930s, so it's about the same time. So this mixed messages, he's doing there's a great deal of demand for his rocket covers, but also he's stuck for cash. Um, and I'm suspecting that from about uh, 1935 onwards, he did not generate any income from his dentistry practice, which he had uh, at home. But all of his income came from uh, rocket covers and little income from the books that he published and was selling. So I think most of the time, as with most startups, he struggled, uh, as, as mostly with startups today, he struggled financially. And in the end, particularly the Second World War and all the difficulties that surrounded him in Calcutta and his illness, he really didn't make a great deal of money. Although today his covers still continue to be traded at very, very high values. So where does the uh, aerophilately and uh, rocket mail community stands today? Uh, is this uh, as enthusiastic today? Because the technology is, of course, very mature. We have... <laughs> You know, many commercial services like FedEx uh, carrying mail across the world today. And uh, I don't know about the rocket mail community as well. Well, you know, uh, there's this uh, wonderful experiment in 1959 where the U.S. Navy demonstrate what uh, Smith had been doing for a long time with these rockets. But they used a cruise missile. 
So launched from a, a submarine and landed on a runway. Uncrewed and automated, of course, but it, they used uh, cruise missile to demonstrate the concept of, I suppose then it would be called, missile mail. But, um, yeah, you're right. The um, uh, days of uh, rocket mail, as such, have, uh, have, have, have ended because aircraft uh, can do this more regularly, more conveniently, more cheaply because they can fly mail um, as well as people. Um, no, the, but the aero, oh, astrophilately as it stands, is really quite a growing field. Um, since the space age in particular, you know, uh, space station um, has seen rock, uh, envelopes being stamped. stamped. Um, they've, uh, envelopes have been stamped in lunar orbit. The Apollo 11 astronauts stamped two envelopes on their way back from the moon. Uh, Neil and Buzz were supposed to do that on the surface of the moon, but they ran out of time. And uh, the, uh, David Scott in Apollo 15, he used a rubber stamp and stamped an envelope on the surface of the moon. And uh, both the rubber stamp and the envelope are in, now in the National Air and Space Museum. Um, Rakesh Sharma, when he was on board the Salyut 7, uh, in 1984. He also stamped uh, some envelopes and when he returned to Earth he sold them to generate some money for some local hospitals. So this area of astrophilately is still uh, growing and uh, every time there's something new and unique um, to, to mark uh, an event, uh, philately still plays a part. And a recent um, uh, experiment by um, Jeff Bezos um, collected envelopes uh, from various school kids and he put them on the, uh, in a capsule, suborbital flight, but um, uh, he demonstrated that uh, philately is live and kicking even today. Overall, the book on, uh, I think, Stephen Smith, uh, for me, was uh, kind of, uh, you know, inspiring to see a guy experiment uh, in uh, British India you know, having uh, no backers, no money, no VC funding, <laughs> no engineering backgrounds and, you know, no support of uh, many kind and still going at it for more than a decade. And it's uh, kind of inspiring to see that it kept him going for such a long time. And after which, you know, in the 40s, he had to face, uh, you know, the problems that came with World War II and then uh, the struggles of the Indian independence and so many problems that I see, you know, that Stephen Smith had to undergo. But it looks like, you know, he also had to suffer, his activity had to suffer during the, the war and the, just the pre-independence, uh, you know, time in India, right? Yeah, and you know, this is the thing that got to me. Um, you know, we all uh, know people who struggle and uh, make their way in life, but this was uh, Stephen Smith. In the end, he perhaps didn't make a huge contribution to rocketry. But his effort, his persistence um, over so many years and doing it alone and unsupported and, and really being uh, ignored by the authorities, that's the story of the book. That's the, it's just a personal story. It just happens to be about rockets, which got me in there. But uh, that's really the, the story that I wanted to bring out of the shadows. I think he deserves some recognition, uh, which he never got in his lifetime. Um, I think um, the in those days the communication that he had uh, 
was through the journals and letters. And because a lot of those, especially letters, weren't published, there's a lot of uh, information in the, in, in the archives. I'm sure it's still out there. You know, when he died, um, a lot of his uh, personal documents were made um, spread all over the place. Many were sold off to some collectors in India. But some of it, I was surprised to read. This is another letter that I found in the National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. Um, somebody was selling his material or his documents, his collection, um, a year after he died in San Francisco. So, again, he had uh, a much greater presence uh, outside India than he did uh, inside India. So, Gurbir, uh, you know, my uh, final question to you would be, we've all had to undergo a lot of struggles which are very similar, uh, but in the new space realm where we're also trying to find, uh, you know, uh, means to our technology and, and how to mature a lot of it and, uh, you know, trying to find backers, trying to find takers, uh, so many of them, and we can get a lot of inspiration from somebody like Stephen Smith, but there's also, you know, the, the lessons from the failures of Stephen Smith and to just deal with, uh, you know, ever not being able to, uh, to have any success, for example, and still going at it is also very inspiring. Your book, I think, uh, has been very insightful in, uh, in learning about a lot of these things. And uh, so was there anything that you would uh, want to tell us about uh, specific lessons that uh, uh, from Stephen Smith that you know, we could take uh, within the new space community here? I'm saying that uh, the story of Smith, Stephen Smith in the book is pretty much a human story. And although it's a very different world of the 1930s in India, using powder rocket mails and very small rockets over short distances, and of course we're not talking about space in any way, um, yes, there are many parallels that we can draw. And in fact, in... Uh, um, many ways i think uh, listening to some of uh, your episodes on new space india podcast helped me join the dots between what smith was experiencing then and what uh, we're experiencing today and some of your guests highlight uh, the um, difficulties uh, that uh, startups have with the government in action or in some cases because of the actions that governments take. And I'm using this as an example of the New Space India in India and Indian government, but I think this is valid uh, around the world. Um, so, you know, in India particularly, uh, unless there's a law that allows it, it's illegal. And that's really very, not very helpful. And I remember listening to some of your contributors, uh, I think it was Sushmita Mahanti, who... Uh, engaged with Israel, but expressed the frustration, difficulties that she had in day-to-day uh, -day activities. Um, Mihesh Murthy, I think, <laughs> very vocal guy, he um, expressed the um, Israel's reluctance to support Indian satellite manufacturers. And it was only when he got uh, support from SpaceX that he went back to, to Israel who offered him a launch on PSLV. He shouldn't have had to do that. Um, Rajnakol um, talks about eloquently about the absence of a space policy. You know, uh, 
the, the recent uh, episode about uh, the absence or the, the desire for a space regulatory authority of India. All of these issues um, make uh, uh, the uh, make India um, the, in the absence of uh, a space bill really as it's a tough time for space uh, uh, new space actors in India to to operate. And one of the saddest things I remember one of your episodes was with uh, Deepika Jacodi, uh, who's a space lawyer practicing in Europe, and she was advised that she should not return to India. And I thought it was very sad, because people like her, uh, especially once the space bill is ex does exist, are going to be so important. And the recent announcement by the fi uh, finance minister to support the private sector to create a level playing field, I found that fairly superficial. I would have liked the government to go further. So all these are the hurdles uh, that uh, we see in India today. Um, and Smith had them in his time. I think if uh, Smith had uh, contact with people of similar interests and perhaps financial support from either benefactors or perhaps even the government or the military, which he tried unsuccessfully, um, maybe there could have been an organisation called the Indian Interplanetary Society to go alongside the one in America and the BIS in, in Britain in the early 30s. And you know, the um, BIS was one of the founding organisations that uh, was present at the first Paris meeting in 1950, where the IAF, the International Astronautical Federation, was founded. Schmiedel, Friedrich Schmiedel, was present at that time. Perhaps uh, if uh, things had gone better, Smith could have been there representing India. As you're finding in New Space India, the absence of the government support is holding back progress uh, now, sadly, as it did for Smith in his time. But who knows, maybe the future will be a bit more optimistic. We'll see. Gurbi, this has been uh, yet another fascinating episode and uh, we've had a chat for almost 90 minutes uh, on Stephen Smith and thank you very much again for you know, appearing on the show and uh, discussing a lot of details on the book. And I definitely recommend, uh, you know, the listeners to go check out the book and I'll put a description and a link to the book itself for people to have a look. Uh, thank you again for appearing on the show. Thank you. The book is available in India. Uh, unfortunately, because of the COVID-19, only e-books available at the moment, but the paper and hardback versions will be available soon. Thank you very much for your time, uh, Ryan.